HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app that helps you find deals, save money, and earn rewards at local businesses in New York City. The first couple days of the pandemic, I was thinking, why is this happening to me in my restaurant? And then it just became so widespread and it was happening to everyone at the same time. And it was just shocking that we're still, we're talking 11 months later and that assistance hasn't come. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's communications director. Today we're asking, what is the state of restaurants in the U.S.? We look at the toll the pandemic has already taken on the hospitality industry and the ways that restaurant closures and high levels of unemployment have been enabled by government inaction. In the present moment, we wonder to what extent pivoting one's business model is a viable option for most restaurants. And as we gaze to the future, we imagine what kinds of restaurants will survive and which may be lost from the fabric of our communities. Guiding us through this conversation is Eli Sussman. Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn and have been here the entire time. Eli is a restaurant owner, chef, and the host of HRN's series, The Line. And so I remember having a conversation standing in the kitchen and talking to a couple of folks that were working at the Lorimer Street Samisa, and they said, well, how long do you think we're going to be closed? And I said, I'm not really sure. I'm thinking that it's going to be a couple weeks and just how, in retrospect, how naive and also the lack of information that we had and just generally no one really could have foreseen how drastic and awful things would get so quickly. Samisa was Eli's restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, that he ran with his brother, Max. Last March, they decided to close Samisa, not only for dine-in service, but for takeout and delivery, too. They wanted to avoid having their staff commute. During that time, Eli volunteered his time and resources to Food Issues Group, a collective of food and hospitality workers. What we did was we utilized either existing spaces and or staff in order to pack grocery kits and put together meals for uh, some organizations that were in need. So Samisa specifically, originally I was cooking meals for the Ali Forney Center. And so that is a LGBTQ plus shelter. 
Eli was running a one-man show for a while, but eventually his staff came back and Samisa reopened for takeout and delivery. And then throughout this entire period, I was also negotiating with our landlord, trying to come to some sort of agreement on how to move forward and how to remain in the space. And unfortunately, we were unable to come to an agreement with our landlord. And so on September 30th, we shut down the Lorimer Street location and had to move out because of uh, a landlord dispute, unfortunately. Eli wasn't alone in this experience. According to the National Restaurant Association, 100,000 restaurants closed during the first six months of the pandemic. But this colossal problem did not result in a unifying solution. It's a such a fragmented industry where it's not like an airline industry where there's four big players and they have a strong lobby. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of restaurants across the United States who, while they're collectively many, do not have a collective voice. You add an industry that employs millions of people and generates billions of dollars, and it seemed and it felt like all of the people in the industry were just screaming into the void saying, do you want to help us? Can anyone help us? Now it's the middle of winter and many more thousands of restaurants may not make it to spring. Traditionally, December, January, February are the the absolute worst for restaurants anyways. You know, you get a little holiday season bump if you're a specific type of restaurant or you're a catering company, but winter is hard for most people in the hospitality business. And we didn't have a very good Christmas this year. And we didn't have a New Year's really this year. And so you're going to see lots and lots of places closing over the next couple months. The vast majority of them that closed are never going to be able to reopen. And even some places that are still open are so deep in debt and have burned so much cash that they're bound to close in the next couple weeks or months anyways. Restaurants have deep ties to their communities and to other industries. Eli anticipates widespread effects on the economy if we allow restaurants to continue shuttering. If the government does care, they have not shown it in a concrete way of creating a system that actually helps these businesses to remain open, to employ people, to continue to pay their bills and to satisfy their financial obligations. And this trickles up and it trickles down. When you don't help these independently owned businesses, you're negatively impacting the workforce. Everyone that they deal with who's a vendor that they may owe money to, their landlords, banks that they have lines of credit with. So it spider webs out into everything. Unfortunately, those most neglected are the people who need relief most. And those are the people that these government programs should be benefiting, which are hourly workers, which desperately have needed money over the last couple months to do just really simple, straightforward things to stay alive, like buying groceries and paying their rent and being able to afford to go to the doctor. And unfortunately, those are things that people in the hospitality industry struggle with when times are good. And when we're in a normal situation, they still live paycheck to paycheck and desperately rely on hourly wages and tips. And so when you remove that from people and there's no long-term safety net, 
people get furloughed and the PPP runs out or they never got any unemployment or they never were able to get PPP and then they're just stuck and now they have no money and uh, they're stuck at home with no prospects. And that's a terrifying position to be in. And it's the position that millions and millions of people are in in the United States still. And I think it's a reflection of the poor leadership from the federal government that doesn't listen to independent businesses and also doesn't really care about people that work at small businesses. They tend to be hourly workers, and that isn't who this administration has paid attention to. Eli is referring to the Trump administration as this interview was recorded before the inauguration of President Biden. Before his inauguration, Biden released the outline of a $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. While it didn't specify what relief for restaurants would look like, many are hopeful about his support for the industry. A statement from the Independent Restaurant Coalition explicitly states, we are encouraged. It goes on to say, quote, President-elect Biden's plan opens the door for Congress to pass the Bipartisan Restaurants Act and ensure America's second largest employer gets the grants they need to fully reopen and secure 11 million jobs. But Eli wonders whether the issues the hospitality industry faces have been approached in the wrong way. Really, when it comes down to it, I think that there should have been a nationwide system where people were paid to stay at home. So instead of, you know, framing the discussion as was the PPP a good program and did it work? I actually think we should be looking to other countries that compensated people fairly in order to stay at home so that they could potentially get a uh, a hold on the virus and and keep their people safe. And so the United States never really even had a discussion about paying people a livable wage to stay at home. He fears we've put too much pressure on restaurants to keep themselves afloat. The pivot was often represented in the media as this saving grace for restaurants that somehow we're going to find this magic ability to find, uh, to sort of squeeze a new profit line out of a, a struggling business. And the truth is, is that for every business that was able to pivot and, you know, maintain maybe the, the smallest margin of of earning money or even maybe squeaking out a profit, there were tens or hundreds that were closing and that were unsuccessful in pivoting. So yeah, definitely some places were able to figure out a way to do uh, maybe takeout or delivery in a way that they hadn't done before. And people were maybe selling alcohol and folks were ordering alcohol to go. But you'd be really hard pressed to find anyone who considers this a successful way to do business. While he applauds anyone who has found a way to keep their restaurant's doors open, Eli believes the assumption that pivoting is a universal option is fundamentally flawed. But it's not a viable system to ask people that have spent every ounce of their creative energy creating a business model where they have thought about it tirelessly about what works for them and what they want to sell and what their space works to do and then say all right change every single bit of that in an effort to stay open and try to reconceive and reconceptualize everything that you've thought of uh, in an effort to stay open pivoting isn't accessible to everyone And it's also not a catch-all solution for the difficulties restaurants are facing. 
By changing your business model, you may be sacrificing some of the pillars this industry has traditionally relied upon. Everybody knows that the margins come from alcohol and people tend to drink more alcohol when they're sitting and enjoying themselves and having a wonderful night that they don't want to end. And so when you've thrown on your pajamas and walked down the block to pick up some food in plastic containers, you're probably not going to buy two bottles of wine and take them back to your couch in the same way that you may have if you sat there all night on a date and, and were getting dinner. People are spending less and simultaneously losing the sense of hospitality that restaurants can offer. One of the main issues with the pivot to takeout is that one of the benefits of having people dine in is that you can touch the table and interact with them. And it gives an opportunity for the restaurant to actually upsell them, but also provide a certain amount of hospitality, which results in tips for the waitstaff, right? So you are unable to really convince someone to order dessert or order another round. And when you aren't able to get those check averages up to a level that they were when people were dining in, what you do is you sell people one app and two entrees, and maybe they leave a tip, maybe they don't. And so your $200 check average, let's just say, when they were dining in is now a $100 check average. After a short break, we'll consider what these trends mean for the future of the industry. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app created to help you find deals, save money, and earn rewards at local businesses in New York City. Dashable will help you find the deals worth dashing for in a variety of categories, from food and drink to art, health, and pets. Support local businesses and save money when you download Dashable today. That's D-A-S-H-I-B-L-E. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's Communications Director, in conversation with chef and restaurant owner Eli Sussman. Restaurants already look and feel dramatically different than they did a year ago. Physical spaces have transformed to make seating outdoors, dining socially distant, and interactions largely contactless. Looking ahead, Eli predicts the flexibility of restaurant space will remain important. It will be even more important to have a spot that has a good location with uh, foot traffic. And I believe that folks are going to be evaluating new leases by the frontage as well of their business. They're going to be thinking about not only the four walls of their restaurant, but also looking at leases that have an existing backyard or outdoor space as a major incentive to sign that lease. And then also looking at the street and thinking to yourself, am I going to be able to put an outside structure here? If this happens again, if there's another virus and we go to outdoor dining, I need that space. And if it doesn't, well, then this is an added benefit. If the city continues this outdoor streets program, then you've basically been able to achieve a whole new area of outdoor square footage that you can uh, that you can then monetize. So there's going to be a different evaluation somewhat on on what people look to do with spaces because a massive, beautiful indoor space where you can seat 150 people that might not be a priority now for a fine dining restaurant. That might be biting off more than they can chew and they might say, I want a 40 seat space because it's more manageable and I don't have as high a rent and I just want to turn the room more. 
While many restaurants have struggled to quickly pivot during the pandemic, the long-term impacts of COVID are likely to change what business models are viable for restaurants. I think you're going to see places at the higher end of the spectrum looking more towards fine dining, but casual fine dining. I think that that's going to be a, a vertical of of the hospitality industry that will continue to grow. So like really high price point entrees and items that are served in a slightly more casual setting with really fine service. I think that's going to flourish. And then at the fast casual level, at the sort of $17 and under price point for bowls and plates and sandwiches, I think that is going to flourish. And you're going to see a lot of places that are going to expand their footprint in the city and also new concepts popping up. But consumers and our communities will still be missing out. And then unfortunately, in the middle, I think you're going to see a lot of those type of concepts go away, which is the small, independent, neighborhood-style restaurant that isn't that expensive and is good, but maybe isn't a true destination. I unfortunately think that those places have mostly been going out of business. And I don't know how long it's going to take, but I think for quite a while, they're not going to return. So it's going to be a very bottom-heavy and top-heavy price point industry for a while. And then hopefully you'll see folks that are able to maybe move to New York City or, you know, a sous chef or somebody says, I want to take the chance and I'm going to sign a lease. And then hopefully over the next couple years, as leases remain low, you'll see people taking chances and trying to open up new independent concepts. But even though leases are low right now and there's a lot of vacancies, no one has any money and no one wants to invest in restaurants. So it's going to be a minute until uh, you see innovation in that middle space where there's not huge investment coming from venture capital pushing fast casual concepts and really rich finance-backed fine dining restaurants. For the industry as a whole, Eli has this directive. Restaurants have to charge more and have to educate the public about what it really costs to operate a restaurant. And that's a really tall order. And that's a lot to ask of restaurants. He hopes this new administration will play a part in this process. I think one thing that could really help provide for restaurant workers across the United States is just providing health care and making it so that there's there's something that they don't have to worry about, which is if I get sick, do I have to choose between buying groceries or going to the doctor? So I would hope that there would be some UBI and that universal health care would be top of mind for the administration since it seems like they will now have control to actually push things through. So I'm very, very hopeful, but I'm also realistic that these things don't happen quickly. The consequences for further inaction remain steep. COVID has only exacerbated the unfairness and unequal nature of our society. And never is that more been more apparent than in the hospitality industry, which employs proportionally a huge number of people of color. And so for folks in the hospitality industry to not be heard is unfortunate, but it is not 
unexpected. Find resources to support restaurant workers in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Eli Sussman. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, Jenny Dorsey, and me, Kat Johnson. This episode was produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.